am especially happy uh, to talk with you all about a subject that I think uh, uh, is just now being admitted by so many people. Uh, I, I remember when I was a young Christian here in the U.S. and uh, people just didn't talk about their doubts. If they did, they talked about it as something from the past. Um, but uh, I think now more and more people are, are saying, no, this is part of life and this is part of faith. And my doubts won't hurt me as much as keeping my doubts a secret or being afraid to admit my doubts will hurt me or pretending that I don't have doubts will hurt me. And so um, uh, I'd like to uh, talk about faith, uh, faith after doubt. Good morning, friends. Welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, you're our guest, and we're glad you're here. If you'd like to let us know, just text the word WELCOME to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just fill that out and tell us about yourself, and you'll get more information about The Well. Thanks for being with us today. And today is the first Sunday in Lent. Lent is a 40-day season of preparation for Easter. And our Lent series uh, this year is based on a book by Brian McLaren called Faith After Doubt why your beliefs stop working and what to do about it. So we're reading through this book together during Lent. And then every weekend, the sermon will track along with the reading. And then this coming Wednesday, we're starting a brand new online connect group to discuss the reading. So you can purchase a copy of the book wherever you buy books. And then the reading plan is online at wellchurch.org. You can get information about that online connect group at our website, wellchurch.org as well. You can read the book hear the sermon, and then discuss the same material at the Online Connect group every week. And our goal with this series is that those of us who feel like we are in a place in our, our spiritual lives where we're deconstructing or trying to reconstruct something, or maybe not sure what we're going to end up doing and what it's going to look like in the future at all, we can at least have a time when we can read the same material and, and be honest with each other and, and talk and, and give each other some tools in our spiritual journey uh, to move forward in some meaningful way, whatever that looks like for you. And this is very important to say that the goal is not that we would all pretend that we agree on the same things, that we would all look the same, that we would all make the same decisions in our spiritual journey. The last thing churches need is more pretending. That's, that's not going to help us. We want to get to a place where we can be honest about our questions and doubts with each other and journey along with each other, however that ends up looking in your life. And so that's where we're headed for this Lent. And by the way, today is a communion Sunday for us. We take communion the first Sunday of the month. And so if you'd like to participate in communion after the service, just have a piece of bread ready and a beverage and, and we'll take communion together. So 65 million adults in the U.S. have dropped out of church. And another 2.7 million are leaving every year. Now, maybe that's a surprise to you. Maybe it's not. Maybe you can identify with uh, 65 million people who have dropped out of church. Maybe they have questions that uh, they, they knew they were not allowed to ask in their church communities. Their church communities did not give them a place to process 
and be intellectually honest. And so they left. Maybe, maybe they had it with hypocrisy and, and disappointment, church scandals and, and abuse, and, and maybe it was just too much, and maybe that's why they left. Maybe they were turned off by the fusion of religion and politics that we're seeing in the United States to the extent that there are, are Christians who are running into the arms of political authoritarianism. Some even white supremacy with this emergence of, of white Christian nationalism. It's, it's, it's hard to tell where religion ends and politics begins in the United States or vice versa. Maybe they were just embarrassed to be a part of that. Maybe they made the moral choice that they just can't go there anymore. And that's where their church was going. So they dropped out. Maybe they or somebody they love is a member of the LGBTQ community. And they knew that no matter how much the sign says all are welcome, it's really a bait and switch. And they figured out it's not true. Maybe they were embarrassed by the anti-science stance that so many Christians and churches have taken during COVID or during a time of climate change and they just don't want to be a part of that. Maybe you can identify with them. Maybe you're in a place in your spiritual journey where you've gotten honest about your own questions and doubts and you realize that you couldn't fit in to a community that you were in before. You, you just are not allowed to say those things. Or maybe you actually tried and you found out quickly that we don't say those kinds of things around here. And you're at a place in your spiritual journey where now you're, you're deconstructing. You're trying to figure out what it is you believe, or maybe you're trying to reconstruct something. Maybe you're at a place where you're not sure that you can remain a Christian. You're not sure how much longer you're going to do the church thing or the Jesus thing at all. And so if that's you, I want to invite you to be a part of this series. Again, keeping in mind, we may not all look the same. We won't all look the same at the end of this six weeks, but we can at least journey together and help each other. And then on April 10th, on Palm Sunday, we're going to invite the author of the book, Brian McLaren, to be our special guest in an exclusive online interview with The Well. We hope you'll come back for that and we'll get to talk with Brian about why he wrote the book. And that can be a part of our journey together as well. So if you find yourself asking questions or doubting some aspect of your religion or spiritual beliefs, you didn't wake up one morning and decide, I'm going to start deconstructing today. That's not how it worked. You didn't make the choice that you're going to observe some things and, and, and ask some questions. Those questions just occurred to you. Those doubts occurred to you because you're, you're a thinking person who sees beyond the surface. And then once those questions occurred to you and, and you allowed yourself to ask those questions and express those doubts even to yourself, you were thrown into a new journey. You were thrown into doubt. You didn't make the choice to ask the questions, but once you decided to get honest, even with yourself, you were thrown into doubt. And today we're talking about the first three chapters of the book, uh, what Brian calls doubt as loss, doubt as loneliness, and doubt as a crisis. And I'm going to share my own story throughout the sermon, and I hope that you find that helpful in some way. Maybe there are some things you can identify with, maybe, maybe not for some, but uh, if you feel alone or angry or hurt or confused and, or you feel upended 
and you're just not sure where all of this is going to go, I hope that by the end of the sermon, at least you feel permission to feel the way you do and articulate the the questions that you're asking and express the doubts that you have and at least the invitation to journey together. So that's where we're headed today. And Brian opens up chapter one of the book by quoting the late Rachel Held Evans, who was an author that, that maybe you're aware of, so many of us love. And Rachel said this, there are recovery programs for people grieving the loss of a parent, sibling or spouse. You can buy books on how to cope with the death of a beloved pet or work through the anguish of a miscarriage. We speak openly with one another about the bereavement that can accompany a layoff, a move, a diagnosis, or a dream deferred. But no one really teaches you how to grieve the loss of your faith. You're on your own for that, period. It became increasingly clear that my fellow Christians didn't want to listen to me or grieve with me or or walk down this frightening road with me. They wanted to fix me. They wanted to wind me up like an old-fashioned toy and send me back to the fold with a painted smile on my face and tiny symbols in my hands. Can you identify with Rachel Held Oven's quote? When you express questions and doubts, there is a loss that takes place. There are, there are things that happen as a consequence of you expressing your questions and doubts that bring you grief. And then Brian tells the story of a pastor named Michael Walker who emailed him about his journey toward doubt. And Michael told Brian that he began secretly reading Velvet Elvis by Rob Bell. And I'm wondering how many of us can, can identify with that. And, and then he went on to read Richard Rohr and, and Pete Enns and Rachel Held Evans. And, and as Brian writes, those were books his tribe didn't approve of. Michael's tribe did not approve of him reading those books. But the system of beliefs that... that Michael had as a pastor were no longer working for him. And he knew that if he said that out loud, it would begin to create a rift between him and his expression of, of Christianity that, that he was a part of. And that's a story that so many of you can tell. You secretly read the books and you got honest with yourself about your questions and doubts. And eventually you said it out loud and you discover that there is a price to pay for being honest. That's true in so many areas of life, but definitely in religion and spirituality. And, and one of the things that I appreciate about Brian's book is that it, it gives us language to articulate our experience, to, to, to name our feelings and, and what we go through when we are thrown into doubt. And not just to, to acknowledge what we think, but how we feel because this isn't just some kind of intellectual journey. This is about who we are as people, and it affects every area of our lives, including our relationships. But you experience doubt as a loss. When you're thrown into a new spiritual journey, a time of deconstruction or reconstruction, you lose something. There is a loss, and losses do bring grief. Uh, There are people in your life that you're not as close to as you were before because you express some, some question or doubt about religion or faith or spirituality. You may have completely lost relationships with some people. For some, maybe your relationship is strained. You know, there's this elephant in the room. There's just that one thing you can't talk about at Thanksgiving dinner anymore. That is a, that's a loss. There's a loss of closeness there because you were thrown into 
doubt. Depending on your faith tradition, maybe you were taught that, that, that uh, a Christian life is kind of like this deal with God where, where you believe the right things and say the right things and, and you do all the things, you tithe and you do all the things you're supposed to do and God blesses you and makes you healthy and wealthy and protects you and everything just goes well for you. And you feel like now if, if you're asking questions and you're expressing doubts, like you're not holding up your end of the bargain anymore. And there may be a legitimate loss there, a, a fear that God's not protecting you anymore, that you're not going to be blessed the way that you used to think that you were going to be blessed. I, I, that's not my understanding of what following Jesus looks like or how it works. But, but if you came from that tradition, that's a legitimate fear you may feel. That's a loss that you may feel. When you get honest about your questions and doubts, there will be a loss of some kind. And I said that I would share a little bit out of my own journey. 2003 was the first time that I really even admitted to myself that I had some questions about faith. I had kind of realized a few things in college, but I, uh, but I just denied it. I didn't really want to deal with it. And in 2003, I was an associate pastor being paid full-time by a church, sitting in, in my office, sitting at my pastor desk when I finally allowed myself to be honest, even with myself, about the questions I had. It was in the fall of 2003, and in this church, we were getting ready to, to you know, go into the Christmas season. I think I had to give a sermon during, during Advent, and I was preparing for that. And for the first time, sitting at my pastor desk in my pastor office, I allowed myself to say, not to anybody else, just to myself, I have some questions and doubts about the virgin birth, the Christmas story. I had never given, my, given myself permission to even say that to myself before. And so as an associate pastor at my desk in my office for the first time, I finally got honest with myself. And then you know what happens when you pull the cord, when you just tug on that one string. A few days later, I found myself thinking, you know, I have some questions about eternal conscious torment people burning alive forever in hell and a loving God allowing that to happen or creating a place like that where people would go. I have some questions about that. And I started to think, you know, if, if, if a person, this is so morbid and, and, and ugly, but if a person is, is burned alive in hell for one minute for every sin they've ever committed, at some point, haven't they paid? Again, it's, it's just a strange you know, stream of thought, but I, it, isn't there some point where they paid? But, but even if there is, it might as well be day one in the light of eternity with no end. And I started asking questions about whether that's a belief that I could hold on to and, and what that would say about God. So in 2003, for the first time in my life, I was honest with myself about my questions. Now, that was the beginning of my journey of deconstructing and trying to reconstruct and, and 
That was my living. That was my degree. That was my income. Being a pastor and believing and saying and, and doing the right things. And I could tell, wait a second, this could be the beginning of some very big losses for me. Brian starts out by saying, when we're thrown into doubt, there will be losses. And then he discusses the stages of grief that we're all familiar with. When, when we face a loss, we go through denial and anger and depression and, and bargaining. And then finally, acceptance. And, and, and it's tiring, it's fatiguing to go through this, this grief process. And maybe as you heard those stages, maybe you're thinking, hmm, I think maybe I'm in this, this stage right now. Maybe you feel like you're in the anger stage. Maybe you, f- you feel like you're in the denial stage or the, the depression stage or the bargaining stage. The bargaining stage, like maybe, you know, maybe I should just go back to the, 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 the old herd that I came from, the old expression of Christianity that I came from. And, and because this is just too painful. I don't, I don't want to be honest about my questions and doubts anymore. There are some things I miss. Maybe I should just go back. Maybe you're in that place. Maybe there are some of us who are are trying to get to a place of acceptance, what Brian would call harmony later in the book that we're going to get to here in in coming weeks. But we even go through the stages of of grief when we experience doubt as a loss. And and part of that emotional journey, Brian goes into in chapter two, when he talks about the, the toll that your honesty takes on your relationships. And he writes that we experience doubt as loneliness. So we experience doubt as a loss. And then we experience doubt as loneliness. It can be lonely to get honest in any way about anything, but definitely your faith and spirituality. And Brian tells a story in chapter two of of going to ride horses with a group of people. and, And while they're all riding together and they're interacting with each other, Brian is observing that the horses interact in a certain way way. And, and he, he writes that he could tell while they were riding and, uh, and talking to each other, the horses were interacting in ways that he can see that he could see as a pattern. He said, Tucker hated to be behind Zeus. I love these horse names. He said, Thunder loved to walk behind Daisy. Rain despised Plato so much that she would kick him if he came up behind her. And Plato was restless if he wasn't somewhere near Thunder and Brian commented to the owner of these horses, you know, these observations, and, and the owner of the horses immediately said, Well, they're herd animals. Horses are, are herd animals. They have power struggles and friendships and, and rivalries and alliances just like we do. He said it's like their brains are are together in a network and each is constantly monitoring the others. That's true of horses, and it's true of humans. We are herd animals too. We, in our development, have come to realize deep somewhere in our brains that there is a place of, of safety in numbers, that, that, it's, that it's better for us to belong, that, that there, there are less threats and, and we're more safe and we have the opportunity to thrive if we can network together and belong in a group, if we can belong in a tribe, if we can belong in the herd. And Brian writes that when we're faced with this choice, where we have questions and doubts, we know things that are not really allowed in our herd. We're faced with this choice. Do I decide to not be honest about who I am and what I think 
so that I can just belong in the herd? Or do I decide, you know what, I'm going to be me and I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be a person of integrity and maybe my journey will help everybody else in the herd too. But that's the choice we make. And it's, it's one of the most difficult choices that we could ever make. There are some of you who have lost your entire church community from the past. I talked with a, a family a few months ago who were new to the well, and they said, we have literally lost all of our church friends. We were a part of a church for years. And over the past few years, we saw, again, this fusion of religion and politics. We saw our church community go in a, in a direction that we just simply couldn't go with them. And then we tried to go back after the lockdown and we walked in and, and we were the only people wearing a mask. And they looked at us like we were traitors, like we were betraying the cause that COVID is just supposed to be this big hoax because we had masks on. And we realized we tried and tried and tried and we have lost our entire church community. There are some of you right now who no longer talk to a family member because of the, of the things that have gone on over the past few years. Or you talk to them, but it's, it's just weird now. It's strained. There's this thing now that you're not as close as you used to be. And that is, that is doubt as a loss, but it's doubt as loneliness. When, when we get kicked out of the herd because we were honest with ourselves. And so we experience doubt as a loss and then we experience doubt as loneliness. And then in chapter three, Brian writes that we experience doubt as a crisis when we finally decide to admit our questions and doubts, even to ourselves, we're thrown into a crisis of faith. But it's not just about faith because, because it touches every other part of our lives, our, our relationships, our view of ourselves, our plans for the future, what we really value in life, how we find meaning in life. That when we express questions and doubts, we experience doubt as a crisis. And Brian writes this in chapter three, when enough conflicting desires wrestle within us, the faith, the faith crisis becomes an identity crisis. With so much to lose, we face the temptation to trade away our integrity and honesty for the security of belonging. If we do, our good faith decomposes into bad faith and we become stagnant and divided persons wearing masks and hiding Secrets. Now, you've already made that choice or you wouldn't be here. But sometimes it's hard to keep making that choice. When there's a, a herd you would like to belong in, when you feel the pain of not belonging in it anymore, when you feel the pain of those strained relationships, we experience doubt as loneliness, but doubt as a crisis because it affects every part of who we are, including our identity. We define so much of ourselves by our relationships. And when those are affected, when our life purpose is affected, when our career is affected, when our, when our, our plans for the future are affected, it affects our view even of our very selves. So I first got honest with myself in 2003, and that was just the beginning of my journey towards deconstruction and, and some kind of, of reconstruction. And that continued for several years, my wife Hannah and I got married in 2008, so five years later. And you know, there was an ebb and flow. There were times when I didn't you know, ask that many questions, and there were times when I, when I went through, I don't know, months in my life where I was just in, in like hyper question mode and just trying to figure out what I believe and what I don't and going through all those stages of grief. And I remember early in our marriage, 
standing in our kitchen. I remember, I can picture where we were standing in our kitchen. When I, you know, had been telling my wife about my questions and doubts and, and I said to her, I just don't know if I can do it anymore. Keep in mind, I was still a full-time pastor, making my living as a pastor and a newly married guy. And I told my wife, I just don't know that I can do this anymore. And I actually said to her, you know, I'm sorry because I know that you thought you were marrying this good Christian guy. And I'm not sure that I can, that I can be that. And I was trying to figure out, you know, where to go in life. And, and as, you know, still employed as a pastor and I found out about this seminary program, this master's degree program, where you could go through a cohort for two years, and at the end of that cohort, you could decide if you wanted to be a pastor or if you wanted to be a clinical counselor. So it was like a a pastoral counseling cohort for two years, and then you would decide which route you wanted to take. And and I thought, well, that's going to buy me some time. I can explore and, and try to figure this out. And if, if I can be a pastor or not, and if I, if I can't, then, then I'll at least have something as a newly married guy. I'll have something good that I can do with my life. I remember where we were standing in the kitchen when we had that conversation. And, and I just feel so bad for my wife. I mean, since then, she's gone through her own deconstruction and reconstruction process. But I had just gotten there you know, a little bit before she did, but I started this, this seminary program and, and one of the first classes I took was an Old Testament class. And the professor was Dr. Dan Hawk that I talked about last week. And he was our guest actually um, in an online service a year, year and a half or 15 years ago, however long it's been since the, the COVID lockdown. And, and so I was in this Old Testament class with Dr. Dan Hawk. And starting the first week, he would put up artifacts from the ancient Middle East up on the, up on the screen and you know, stelas, carvings, um, historical artifacts. We, we discussed the Code of Hammurabi and, and the similarities and differences to the Ten Commandments and the law that we find in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And, and, and I saw over, over a period of several weeks, he was painting a picture of the culture that produced the books that we now have in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And in, in, a, in an artful way, he was leading the class to the realization that the Bible is different than what many of us were taught it is. And some students were miffed. They, you could see some of them were just getting more and more uncomfortable as the weeks went by. Not me. I was loving every minute of it. And for me, that class was a turning point where I could see that the Bible, my faith, what it means to be a person of faith, to have a spiritual life, was so much more fascinating and alive and meaningful and interesting and intellectually stimulating than I ever thought that it could be. At that point in my life, I was embarrassed to call myself a Christian. But I realized, wait, no, the Bible is, it's, it's not a book dropped from heaven in its final form dictated by God. It's, it's actually closer to being a record of our ancestors struggling with the same kinds of questions and life 
that we do with their assumptions, with their views of the world, their languages, their cultures, all of the beliefs that have been handed to them, and they're doing their best to sort through it and live well and live with wisdom. And that's what I want to do. And I I just had a brand new view of what faith and spirituality could be. So at, at the end of that cohort, I decided to remain a pastor. And then it wasn't long after that that my wife and I moved from Ohio out here to Arizona, where we are now. And we started a church called One Church. And it was a community for people like us, where, where people could be honest about their questions and doubts. That was our slogan, questions and doubts, welcome. And I met an entirely new community of people and I, that I had never dreamed was possible a few years before that, when I was wondering, I mean, could I even call myself a Christian? And I had this incredible experience of community so that I wouldn't trade my journey for the world. The pain of it, the lost relationships, the strained relationships. By the time time that I got to one church and I was giving sermons that were on the internet, everybody in my social network heard what I was saying And I lost almost all of my college friends. I lost almost all of my previous church relationships from churches I'd served in. I had strained relationships with family members that have never recovered. But I wouldn't trade it. Because now I could be honest about who I am, about what I think, about what I believe, what I what I think is important, and I didn't have to perpetuate the harm that my religious system that I came from perpetuates. But I could be a part of healing in people's lives. I could be a part of acceptance in people's lives. And for the first time, I could experience the real gospel, the real good news. When it's good news and tears of joy stream down people's faces, when they know that it doesn't have to be the way that it used to be, that there is something new and better and I wouldn't trade it for the world. And I love what Brian writes on page 28 in the book. He says, the greatest threat to our moral and spiritual health wasn't questions or doubts, but rather dishonesty or pretense about our questions or doubts. I've come to suspect that many of our former colleagues felt questions and doubts arising within them just as I did, that day in the high school bathroom, as he tells his own story. But for reasons even they may not have understood, they dismissed their questions, denied their doubts, and refused to face and grapple with them. Publicly, they beamed a happy, confident, doubt-free smile to the church and the world. But privately, they had a frightened, doubting, troubled heart and probably suppressed their questions even from themselves. Hypocrisy and self-deception proved to be a far greater danger than uncertainty. And because I went through my deconstruction and I'm still in a process of reconstruction, my view is it never ends. We're all a work in progress. I could live free from self-deception and I could experience the real good news of seeing people's lives changed by God's love in a way that was not possible in that old herd that I came from. I want to close with something that uh, has completely different meaning for me 
than it used to have when I read it 15, 20 years ago. And no matter what your spiritual journey looks like, what it will look like in the future, I want to read this to you for your encouragement because that's what it means to me now. And for those who have gotten honest about our questions and doubts and we're experiencing doubt as loss and loneliness and and crisis, maybe we wonder if, if maybe we should just chuck the whole thing or if there's anything worth holding on to. And so this passage has deep meaning because of that. It also has meaning for another reason, because when we talk about questions and doubts, there are people who will just immediately snap back. Well, the Bible says to to not doubt. We should never doubt. And and somebody who doubts is double-minded. They're unstable. We should never doubt. And that comes from this passage that I want to read to you now. It comes from the letter uh, from James in the New Testament. I believe James was the half-brother of Jesus. And one of the reasons I like James is James speaks plainly. He doesn't mince words, and he just, he just cuts to the heart of the matter. And I just think that, that James has a, a view of faith that is closer to what I have now. I would have never seen that 15 or 20 years ago when I read this passage. It means something completely different to me now than it did then. But I want to read this passage to you from James chapter 1, starting with verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. And there are people who read that. Well, there it is right there. Don't doubt. There it is in, in, in black and white. Don't doubt. You know, Ryan Gear doesn't believe the Bible. Don't doubt. I love, I love this passage, first of all. When James writes about the testing of your faith and persevering, I used to think that was like the apocalypse. Like I would be threatened for my faith in Jesus and I should, I should persevere and not give up my faith in Jesus and be a martyr. And there's this apocalyptic martyrdom fantasy that was a part of the kind of Christianity that I came from. Now I think of it when you go through times of questioning and your faith is tested. James says, persevere so that you can become mature and complete. It doesn't say so that you'll become a cookie cutter Christian, happy, clappy, just like, you know, some of the folks want you to be, like Rachel Held Evans uh, said and, and Brian quoted earlier. No, to be a mature person, to be a complete person, to be a a mature, good person, not just a, not a cookie cutter Christian, to be a mature, good person who understands life. When your faith is tested, persevere. And then in verse 5, James says, pray for wisdom. Wisdom is different than knowledge. Knowledge is information. Knowledge can be a set of facts. But wisdom is knowing how to apply knowledge. Wisdom is knowing really how to live well, how to live with wellness. It's one of the reasons we named the church the well. It's there's a double meaning. We're in the desert and water is important, so the well makes sense. But we wanted to be a community of people where we journey towards wellness. 
Wisdom is about living well. And then James says, don't doubt. This is why context is so important. In real estate, the rule is location, location, location. And interpreting the Bible, it's context, context, context. When James says, don't doubt, what are we praying for? What are we praying for in the passage when James says, don't doubt? In verse 5, we're praying for wisdom. We're praying for the ability to, to live well, to, to persevere and to become a mature person, to become a good person and to live well. James says, when you pray for wisdom, don't doubt because God will answer that prayer. Reminds me of something Jesus said, when, when you ask, you will receive. When you knock, the door will be open. When, when, you, uh, when you seek, you will find. James says, it's not a blanket statement about don't doubt. Don't ever, don't have an intellect. Don't acknowledge your questions. James says, when you're praying for wisdom, it's the opposite of being anti-intellectual and lying to yourself. It's the opposite of that. James says, when you're praying for wisdom, don't doubt that your prayer will be answered. When, when you seek wisdom, you'll find it. James says, you don't have to doubt that. I love this passage because it means something completely different to me than it used to mean. And then one more reason that I love it is verse 27. Because there are some of you right now that are thinking, you know, I don't know if I can even remain a Christian. I don't know what my spiritual life will look like a year from now, five years from now. Maybe you feel anger. Maybe you're in the anger stage. Maybe you feel lied to. Maybe you feel like people took advantage of you. They, they told you fairy tales and, and, and you are resentful. If that's where you are, that's okay. That's normal. Maybe you're in a different place where you're just confused. You're just sad by the loss and you're not sure what to hold on to. You're not sure if anything is worth holding on to. I love James chapter 1 verse 27. And it means something completely different than it used to. James writes, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James doesn't write, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure is being 100% certain about metaphysical claims that you read in the Bible. Or believing whatever the pastor said 20 years ago. Or believing whatever evangelical book you know, your family member passed on to you hoping they could still save your soul. James says, no, that's, that's not religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless. James says it's, it's this, look after the most vulnerable people in society and don't let yourself be corrupted by the nastier parts of this world. Don't be evil. Be a good person. Care about people who struggle in life. That's what James says good religion is. I don't know about you, I, I say amen. There, there are an awful lot of people who claim to be Christians who need to read James chapter 1, verse 27. When you're not sure what you can hold on to, and, and not even for people whether they're you know, who are religious or not, we can all hold on to this. James says, no matter how painful your faith and doubt journey is, you can hold on to justice and goodness. You can be a good person to the people who are most vulnerable in society, and you can keep yourself from being corrupted by the corrupting influences in this world, and you can be a good person. 
That's what really matters. That's what James says. When your faith is tested and you pray for wisdom, oh, don't doubt, you'll receive wisdom. If you seek wisdom, you'll find it. If you want to live well, you'll learn how to live well. It's there. And what really matters, look after the most vulnerable people in this world and be a good person. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, that's something that you and I can hold on to. And so we don't choose to wake up one day and start deconstructing. Once we get honest, we're thrown into doubt. And, and as Brian opens the book, we experience doubt as a loss and as loneliness and as a crisis because it can, it can affect all parts of our lives. And even if we don't know how it's going to turn out and, and it's not going to turn out the same for all of us, there are things we can hold on to. We want to live well. We want to be people who can live with wisdom. And if you seek wisdom, you will find it. And no, no matter what, there is something we can hold on to. The New Testament even says religion that God accepts is good. It's to look out for the most vulnerable people in society, to care and not become corrupt, not, be, not become a part of this corrupt system, to care about justice and goodness. And those things won't, they won't lead us wrong. We can hold on to those things no matter what questions and doubts we have. So that's how we begin our journey this Lent. And I want to invite you to take communion with us. If you, if you want to pray for wisdom, if you, if you are looking to Jesus-inspired spirituality and you're trying to sort through questions and doubts and, and figure out what that can look like in your life, I, I invite you to take communion with us now. You don't have to have anything fancy. I have a regular piece of bread and you can grab a beverage and, and a piece of bread and, and take communion with us. And when Jesus shared this meal for the first time with his disciples, it was the night he was betrayed, the Last Supper. And he was with the, his disciples that he, he belonged with and they belonged with him. They had been kicked out of the herd. Jesus was eventually crucified for that reason. But Jesus shared a meal with his community where he belonged and where they belonged. And Jesus picked up bread and he thanked God for it. And he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. And so let's eat the bread together now. And in the same way, he took the cup. He thanked God for it and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. Let's drink from the cup. I invite you to pray with me. Oh God, first of all, thank you for Brian McLaren in this book, Faith After Doubt. Thank you for his honesty, his transparency, and for giving us language that we can use to articulate how we're feeling and what we're thinking and, and what this experience is like. We all are having different experiences to some degree. The details are different. But there are so many things, God, that we have in common as we journey together here through Lent. Being honest about our questions, some of us feel completely alone. We've lost all of our church friends. God, some of us, we can't really have a close relationship with a family member we used to have because of everything that's happened over the past few years and, and we, we just see things so differently. I thank you for the courage of those of us here who, who decided to get honest. And we experience 
doubt now as a loss and as loneliness and as a crisis because it affects so many areas of our lives. But God, we know we're better off being honest about our questions and doubts than keeping them a secret. The last thing churches need is more pretending. God, we can create something better. As we're honest with ourselves and we journey with other people who are honest, we can experience some, something so much better. And even if it doesn't look the same, we're not all going to end up in the same place. We're not all going to believe the same things. There may be some of us who exit organized religion. There may be some for whom that category just doesn't even work anymore. As we embrace harmony that Brian talks about. But God, during this time, at least we're not alone. We have people who, who are like-minded enough, they're on a similar enough journey to ours that we can journey together and we can, we can read together, we can discuss in the Online Connect group. We can, we can journey together. And we thank you for that gift. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.